Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. I call the confession today as Proverbs 29, verse 13. The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Men of no means and tyrants have something in common. God preserves and directs both of them. It's likely that we would see them both quite differently, and they would probably despise one another. However, they are both fully dependent on God's merciful provision for this life and for the gracious salvation of the next. This proverb shows how wisely God measures out his providences for persons of very different tempers, capacities, and conditions in the world, even those that are contrary to one another. Some are poor and forced to borrow. Others are rich and have great, made a great deal of deceitful, deceitfully that they have uh, obtained and making them corrupt and they're crooked, crooked creditors as well. And yet some are poor and honest and laborious. Others are rich, slothful, and deceitful. Yet they meet together in the business of this world and have dealings with one another. And the Lord enlightens both of their eyes. He causes his sun to shine on both and gives them both the comforts of this life. And to some of each type of man, he gives his grace. He enlightens the eyes of the poor by giving them patience and of the deceitful by giving them repentance. We might think of the poor or the oppressors as blemishes of God's providence, but God makes them to display the beauty of his providence. He has wise ends not only in leaving the poor always with us, but in permitting the deceived and the deceiver, for both he, for both are his, and in turn we give him praise. God's wisdom confounds us and serves to remind us of our own sin. Invite you to kneel where you are if you're willing and able to confess our sin. as we open his word. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time to come together as your people, as a congregation, to consider who you are, to remember who you are, how soon we forget your great grace and mercy, how easily we become enthralled with our own victories and problems. And this is a great opportunity to reflect and contemplate of who you are, to recognize again your worth and worthiness, and to worship you, and to hear you speak. And so as we open your word today, Lord, May our ours be, maybe our ears be renewed again to open our hearts again, be softened to receive 
the seed or the water or the pruning that is needed that Christ might be proclaimed in our lives and in our words. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it was a wonderful time yesterday to gather together in celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and to remember the work that God has been doing over the last 500 years. But not only those 500 years, right? Even then, 500 years ago, they were celebrating the work that God had been doing in history before that. Their celebration may have looked a little bit different as the battles ensued and the the wars took place. Um, But it is a celebration. It is an ongoing celebration to which we are called. And we recognize individuals. We learned a little bit more about Luther and his work yesterday. And we need to, uh, it's helpful to understand that for all of these reformers, for all these early church fathers, for these apostles, for these prophets, um, as the parable of the wedding story reminds us, it's never been an easy road, right? Luther and the reformers went through many struggles and challenges, uh, whether it's Luther or Zwingli or uh, Waldo or Huss, whether it's Cranmer or Beacon or Tyndale or Butcher, whether it's Dentiere or uh, Rosenblatt, whether it's a man or a woman, Beza and Bora, all of these, whether they're young or old, whether they're male or female, whether they're peaceful or radical, God had used them. But they were not easy, copacetic times for these men and women of God. The average reformer only lived about 50 or 60 years. That means if I were a reformer, I'd have only about four years to go. That puts a little bit, you know, our life expectancy now, we're like about 72, 75 years. We still feel like there's plenty of time to go on. But at the time of the reformers, these were the, in these moments of life, it was near the end, and yet they, they progressed, they, they persevered. And they stood against scholars and theologians, church leaders and monarchs, as they worked in the calling that God had given them. It's important for us to understand that those who have come before us, on whose shoulders the giant, the shoulders of the giants on whom we stand, gave all, gave their lives that we might have this opportunity today to hear God's word and to proclaim it to a world that is still in need of Christ. And God is still about the work of saving. His people. See, God's work of salvation is not just about asking Jesus into your heart. 
It's not just that simple prayer. It's not just that signing of a card. It's not just that momentary time where a confession is made. God's work of salvation is about God redeeming his people and his creation. And that work continues moment by moment, day by day. And many difficult battles have been and will continue to be fought for God's truth. And as we've been reminded today through song and through confession and through God's word, we need to understand this dilemma, this paradox in which we live. It seems that we have this Loving, merciful, gracious God who is saving his people, who is also a just and righteous God who is rooting out evil. And I would argue that we are in a day and age that is not new, but seems to be characteristic that we only want to focus on that loving, gracious God. And if that's all we do, then we are not proclaiming the whole truth. And that was the battle that the reformers fought. That was the crux of the thought of the early church fathers. That was where the apostles were. That's where the prophets were. That's where Adam and Eve were as they stood at the tree of life. What God says, is it true or not? Is the whole truth of God reliable and true, or should we amend it a little bit to make it more comfortable? And Isaiah chapter 25 helps us to understand a little bit more this work of God, this work of salvation that has been going on not just the last 500 years, not the last few centuries, not just the last few millennial, not just generationally, but since the foundation, or even before the foundation of time. So we're going to turn there. It's, a, it's set up in chiastic fashion. So it's going to start with some themes there, build on those, reach a climax, and then subside with a repetition of those ideas. And as we look at these Short to 12 verses, we'll not go in depth for that would take a couple of weeks. And while I've been known to, to preach long, I have never been able to go that long. For which Greg is very grateful. But Isaiah 25 takes us through this judgment, promise, judgment, chiasm to remind us of the work of salvation that God, that God is doing. And this particular chapter is pulled into many New Testament uh, teachings. Christ uses it to establish an understanding of the kingdom of God, especially we see in John chapter 5. He talks about those who are going to be resurrected and some, those who have done good, will be to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the res resurrection of condemnation. 
Paul makes reference to this passage numerous times when he's talking about the resurrection or the, the purpose of the veil in the temple in, in the letters to the Corinthians and the Ephesians. And the Apostle John uses its imagery throughout his letter, his revelation, as he talks about tears being wiped away and the destruction of world cities and the great messianic feast and banquet that will be prepared. And then throughout Luke's account of church history, he uses it a time and again to explain the a predetermined redemptive plan that God has and how it was working out in the church. That great mystery that was hidden throughout the Old Testament and now revealed as Christ has finished the work and the church is called to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of men and to exalt Him as Lord. So we want to take a quick look, just a, a survey of this chapter in Isaiah 25 to see God's salvation as it, is, as it is set out to swallow up death forever. And Isaiah begins here in verse 1 to establish God's character. He gives a proclamation, right? Oh, oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Your counsel are of old, your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Isaiah makes this a very personal, very personal uh, passage. Isaiah knows Yahweh. I remember earlier he had seen and his lips had been touched, and he had seen himself as unholy. But yet here. He appeals to him not as the unapproachable God, but he is the Yahweh of friend, Savior, and Sovereign. Isaiah understands the full character and nature of God. And he, he then is going to create here, in essence, a psalm of praise to God. And it's it's a shift from if, if we were able to read through uh, Isaiah 24. He's just come off of a proclamation of universal condemnation of the world. Of those who stand against God. And as he understands that, now he comes into Isaiah 25 to reflect upon what is God really doing. He's not just judging. And he's not just saving but he's doing both and Isaiah wants us to understand that that these plans were formed long ago right your counsels of old these plans were formed long ago with perfect faithfulness he's in God is in complete control he has not lost it he does not keep making it up on the fly as things don't go the way they should we need to understand that history is not cyclical, right? God sits there saying, oh, let's roll the dice and try this. Oh, that didn't work out. Hmm, what should I do next? Let's try this. Oh, man. Adam and Eve blew it. Abraham blew it. 
Moses blew it. David blew it. Everybody's blowing it. What am I going to do next? Well, here, let me give it to a bunch of Democratic Christians and see how that works out, right? That's not how God's operating. It's not cyclical, and hopefully it works out. It's linear. It's teleological, right? Teleological. There is a purpose to the whole thing, and the more God's plan is revealed, the more we understand that he's doing. From the foundation of the world, God planned for his church, but it was not revealed clearly throughout the Old Testament. It's the great mystery that was there, that kept being inferred by the prophets, but never clearly proclaimed. So it's important for us to know the character of God, know what he's doing, that he is a God that is faithful. He is a God of truth, and he is being consistent in that. And we need to see that plan. So what is the plan that we see here, starting in verse 2? First of all, God's salvation is going to be displayed through his power. For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. Poetic language, we must remember that, right? It's chiastic, it's imagery, allegory. We must not try to be too literal with this, but understand that the city is symbolic, right? Think of all the great cities that are used time and again Throughout God's teaching. Again, the city here is going to symbolize the rebellion of man. Even go back all the way back to the Tower of Babel, right? What had happened? God said, go and take dominion over the earth. And what did man do? He gathered together and tried to become like God. Well, they were simply following their first parents, Adam and Eve. Because God said, go and take dominion. And what did Adam and Eve decide to do? Because to become like God. As they were presented with this challenge to what God said as the great deceiver stood there and said, did God really say you shouldn't eat that or touch that? What did God really say? Begin to question, what is it that God is saying? And remember then, that even goes back to Satan himself. That's, that's where that lie begins. Satan, the highest of all the angels, the most beautiful, the leader. And that was not enough. He had to have more. He had to be like God. And so that lie continues time and again. It's perpetuated throughout history. And here we see Isaiah using the city as a symbol of that great rebellion. It stands for every capital of every human society which has tried to make its own way and meet its own needs without God. That's kind of the story of history. God working out his plan and man trying to do it on his own way. Right? Isn't that what Paul reminds us in Romans 1? That God has clearly declared who he is, his attributes, Who he is and what is man's response to that? Well, that can't be right. Subverts the truth. It says, this is what it means. This is how we should live our life. And then that results 
in a life of rebellion against God and God subduing that rebellion. In education, right? What, what, do, they, what do they say? Everything I've everything I learned for life, I've learned in kindergarten. Right? We we know a lot by the time we're out of kindergarten. If we can read and write, man, we're ready to go. But then we spend the next 12 years to say, oh, I'm, I'm now grad, I'm a senior, right? And this is where it really gets tough because really you do. Once you graduate from high school, you know it all. And you, and you live that way too, right? We love, our, we love our graduates. We love our teenagers. But they do know it all. And they believe that. I had a, a fellow colleague once who often would, would say, I, I remember when I was a teenager and knew everything. But now I have 25 years of experience to understand it. Right? We know enough to make us dangerous. We know what God is doing. And yet we don't have all of the experience. We don't have all of the wisdom that helps us to understand it fully. And we must remember, remember our last time together, the lesson that was given to the Egyptians. Why is God destroying the ruthless people? The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Philistines, the Moabites. Why does he continue to destroy them? That they may know and glorify God. Right? What is the, according to the Westminster Confession, what, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And God uses his power of destruction to, to communicate that message. But that's not only that, right? That was Isaiah 24, and, and certainly that's a harsh message. But he continues on in the, verses 4 and 5 to say that he also provides and protects the weak. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. Diminished. What a, what a, present, a, a pleasant balance that is. You've got a, a God who's just and righteous, and because of that, he wants to root out evil, but he's going to care for the needy, right? Isn't that what Christ proclaimed in his ministry? He did not come to take care of those who were well and strong, but to help those who were sick and needy. Isaiah, through, these, through this first passage here, talking about his display of power, characterizes God as a very personal God. You are my God. You have worked wonders. Your plans are formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. You have made a city into a heap. You are, a, the strong people will glorify you. You have been a defense for the helpless. You did subdue the uproar of the aliens. It's all about God. Remember that. It's not about us. It's not about the individual. While that is important. That's how God works. But it's all to bring glory and honor to him. And God in his power will assist the needy 
and poor. He provides that, that peace and that help and that sustenance. But they must receive it as well. God's working among the fallen humanity in a covenant relationship. Do this and this. There's, there's a promise and an expectation or a requirement, right? God takes the initiative. God sets the conditions. And there needs to be a response on the part of the recipient. A response of repentance, faith, obedience, and perseverance. This is the gospel message both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is saving his people and when he does, when God saves his people, they will act out in repentance. They will show faith, they will be obedient, and they will persevere. Right, as we are reflecting upon the Reformation and you think of Calvin and the tulip, right, that was often shown. Those are key elements that come out of the, the teachings of the Reformers. It's not about the work of man, it's about the work of God that he does in people's lives. As Fred Geyser, a professor at Luther Seminary up in uh, Minneapolis says, if you look at the concordance, just do a quick, quick check of the concordance, you'll see that the hand of the Lord, as it's uh, reflected time and again, the hand of the Lord is a symbol of God's active power and presence, and it's both positive and negative in the Bible, and oftentimes it's more of the negative. It is the power that turns back the Egyptians. It turns against the rebellious Israel. It symbolizes the raw power of whatever God is up to. Just think of what's happening in Job. It is also the symbol of God's powerful mercy. It is what will guide John the Baptist as he goes out in his mission. And the letter to the Hebrews reminds us that it is a fearful thing. To fall into the hands of a living God. But it is also proclaimed by Matthew. It's a wonderful thing to be touched by Jesus. It's the same hand. It's the power of God unto salvation. As he roots out evil. And he saves his people. He redeems them. And as we come to the middle of this chiasm, as we understand that that's how God is working, we see this feast that God is preparing. God's salvation is a feast for all nations. All are invited to come and enjoy the, the, the food that has been prepared. What's he say here? It's abundant, right? In this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. Oh, how we moderns shudder at that. Wait, they're having fat and alcohol. Mm -hmm. 
What about my fine trim look and my life expectancy? I can't have a feast like that. Let's not take it too literal here, right? This is poetry. It's representing abundance. God is, is, has a table. If it writes Psalm 23, we sang it today, right? In the presence of my enemies, a banqueting table has been prepared. Are we too afraid of offending our enemies that we won't sit and eat it? Are we afraid that they will attack us while we're enjoying the feast that we won't feast on the promises and abundance that God provides? Here Isaiah is referring to Mount Zion as that scene of end time activity that's that focal point of God. And the messianic banquet that is for all peoples, all nations will be gathered in heaven, feasting, and it's going to be abundant. Not only that, it's voracious. Continues, he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all the people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Here's the pinnacle of our poem. Here's the climax. What is it all about? He's going, to, he's going to take that veil that's been spread over the, all peoples and he's going to swallow it up. He's going to devour it. This veil that has been there since the fall. The spiritual blindness of all people. And God is going to remove it. The veil that was in the temple representative of that, right? That separated man from God because of man's unholiness and God's holiness. Oftentimes this veil, this, this covering refers to death itself. Right? Death will be swallowed up. Shame will be swallowed up. No longer does there have to be shame, right? What does Paul say? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Even though it doesn't seem to maybe fit with conventional wisdom, it is God working as he has always worked to root out evil and to save his people in creation. Removing that spiritual blindness as the heart of stone, as a heart of flesh, as we are given new eyes and ears to hear and understand. That is being eaten up. And the false religions that continue to populate and propagate the earth of that the truth is just a little bit different. It's not exactly what God said but he gives us that marvelous statement at the end he will swallow up death forever in particular Isaiah wants to focus on that veil of death which is fearful we fear death even now that was the proclamation of condemnation in the garden of Eden. If you eat of this fruit, you will die. And that is the lie. That is what permeates our very being. Is that we don't want to die. 
We don't want to not live. Live. What can I do to extend my life? 72 years, 90 years. I, I, I have to say I want to be on the Moses plan, right? 120 years, right? 40, 40, 40, 40. That would be pretty good. What about the guy who lived over 900 years? That was, man, what kind of life expectancy would that be? We wouldn't know what to do with our charts and graphs. But we need to understand as God is working out his salvation, life expectancy is eternal. It's not just limited by our short time on earth. Sinful, rebellious human beings can be redeemed permanently. And life expectancy extended indefinitely because of the work of salvation through Jesus Christ. Death reigned from Adam to Christ, but with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death has been defeated, death has been swallowed up, and we are free, alive in Christ forever. No longer to fear death. Oh, certainly there will be a time when we have to go through a momentary passing of this life to the next, and this body may fail But the death sentence has been exonerated. The banquet of Christ is voracious. The banquet of God's salvation is voracious and it swallows up death entirely. And with it comes healing. What's he saying in the next verse here? The Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. That shame, that reproach has been taken away in the work of Jesus Christ. And as we believe that in Christ alone, by faith alone, in the truth of God alone, we are redeemed and and saved unto eternal life to the glory of God alone. That is the truth of the Reformation. And it becomes satisfying and fulfilling as we see in the next verses. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's the hope. That's the joy of the hope that we see, right? The blue in our Luther seal. Is that how we live our life today? Do we live in the hope of that expectation? That it's a done deal? Too often I know I find myself of, oh, it just can't. Apparently that's not right because my day's not going well. My plans aren't working out. All seems lost. But as God is working out his salvation through demonstrating his power, he presented a feast For all nations to enjoy. But we have to understand here in the last verses that God's salvation is selective. It's going to destroy evil and it's going to oppose the proud. The evil, proud person will not be allowed to feast 
at the banqueting table. For on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab will be trampled down under him, as straw is trampled down from the refuse heap. Moab, in this particular instance, is probably the instigator of the day, so Isaiah uses Moab to paint that picture. But as we've said before, it doesn't have to be Moab. It could be Egypt. It could be Philist, uh, Philist, the Philistines. It could be Babylon. It could be whatever nation. And we could say, look, they are evil and they are proud. They are symbolic of rebellious human beings. They are pri- proud in their own situation. They are content with their own conventional wisdom. And they are achieving They are seeking to achieve peace and longevity and eternal life apart from God. And Isaiah is going to use a a number of repetitions here. The trodden down is in the next few verses. He will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. He will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls. He will bring down, lay low and bring to the ground to the dust. Right, the trodden down is repeated. The spreading out of the hands, the, the idea of swimming is, is repeated. The bringing down and the bringing low. Much like Paul used in the Philippians, rejoice. In the case you didn't hear me, again I say, rejoice. The emphasis is there of what God is going to do. And this has been the message from the beginning and throughout history. Do it God's way or suffer the consequences. God has been clear on what the plan is. He spoke it clearly in the Garden of Eden. It was clear at the time of Noah and the ark. It was clear at the Tower of Babel. It was clear through Abraham, Moses, and through the judges, the kings, and the prophets, throughout captivity and in the teaching of Christ. It is clear what God is doing. Yet those wicked people just won't stay away. They don't get it. And sadly... We tend to acquiesce at this. Remember that the man at the wedding feast who was not dressed properly was kicked out. Christ himself at the end of his Sermon of the Mount said, When have you worked on my behalf? What have you done? And they gave a litany of all their experiences and work that they did in the name of Jesus Christ. And Christ says, depart from me for I have not known you. Once again, it's not about my work. It's not about my peace. It's not about my joy. It's about God and his plan that he's working out. And we need to Understand that. And we need to be encouraged by that. God's salvation is wonderful. Glorious. Magnificent. And it has been his plan from the very beginning. In his sovereignty. In his omniscience. In an omnipotence. He has laid out a plan from the foundation of the world. Time and again that phrase is used. To talk about the death of Christ. To talk about the church. To talk about those who are being called Uh, and, and predestined to be chosen by God. The kingdom of God was prepared before the foundation of the world. The blood of the prophets were shed before the foundation of the world. This is God's salvation. 
And he continually displays it through his power to root out evil and to save his people and his creation, to redeem them. So as we work out our own salvation, as we encourage fellow believers in their faith walk, as we share the good news of God's salvation with unbelievers, may the message of Isaiah 25 be an encouragement to us to persevere in faith. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that is truth. Thank you for your plan of salvation that was established before the foundation of the world. To do away with unrighteousness and evil. And to save those who are lost and in need. Thank you for transcending and reaching down and changing us so that we might know you properly. And we pray that your grace may always precede and follow us, that we may continually be given to good works. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. central commitments that we ought to make is to be submissive to the Lord. He is king and we are the subjects and he is more than just the kind of king that you want to get around obeying. In many kingdoms the ruling authority is seen as the them and we are the, the, are the us. And because the authority is them and not us we don't have a problem avoiding them or even disobeying them. And some of this can be okay, depending on the, who the authority is and what they're asking us to do. Whether that authority is the, the government, or public education, or theologians, or academias, or philosophers. We have to figure all this out in real time, as we examine their demands on us through the lens of Scripture. But here at this table, we come to submit ourselves to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the ultimate an infallible authority. But he's an absolute ruler that's directly put there for our benefit. He loves us dearly and he treats us this and he treats us accordingly to this love. Thus it would be of an utmost affront for us to circumvent his rule. We ought to gladly submit to every aspect of his monarchy. We do not keep secrets from this king. We ought to gladly submit to every aspect of his this authority, we must not disobey his ambassadors or disregard his written law. We do not go around his rule, but we come to him in humility and full homage. For in submitting to his rule, it's the promise of blessing and of eternal life. And at this table, everyone has been baptized and is under the authority of Christ, his body, which is the church, or is invited, invited to eat and drink the wine with us, and when we do, we're acknowledging that we're sinners without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God and His love on us.
Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.